listening to Conversations in Anthropology, a podcast about life, the universe, and anthropology. This podcast is produced by Matt Barlow, David Porter-Giles, Kemi O'Dally, Timothy Neal, and Maithley Meher. It's made in partnership with the American Anthropological Association and the Faculty of Arts and Education at Deakin University. This episode, Tim and Maithley meet Dr. Catherine Besterman the Francis F. Bartlett and Ruth K. Bartlett Professor of Anthropology at Colby College. Catherine's work spans a constellation of anthropological realms, from the ethnography of civil conflict in Somalia, or the critique of humanitarian assistance, to the comparative analysis of algorithms, or the new form of 21st century global apartheid that has emerged from our system of national borders, to which she brings a comparative global ethnographic approach underutilised in recent anthropology. Such far-flung topics are united by a commitment to bring anthropological tools to bear on some of those cultural logics that are at the heart of modernity and its violent proclivity to surmount ethnic, national and geographic distances. She's the author of numerous books, from Making Refuge, Somali Bantu Refugees and Lewiston, Maine, to the forthcoming Militarised Global Apartheid. And as you can hear in the interview, Woven throughout this work is her commitment to an engaged contemporary anthropology that translates its political stakes across scales and to different publics, which is also reflected particularly in several volumes co-edited with Hugh Gustafson, another former guest on the podcast, entitled The Insecure American, How We Got Here and What We Should Do About It, Life by Algorithms, How Robo-Processes Are Reshaping Our World, and Why America's Top Pundits Are Wrong, Anthropologists Talk Back. So we hope you enjoy your time with Catherine as much as we did. So, Catherine, uh, a place we like to start is with the kind of origin story. What for you is your origin story with anthropology? What brought you to anthropology and, and the kind of anthropology that you practice, which has sometimes been described as engaged anthropology? It's not a particularly intellectual trajectory or origin story, as you say. I, when I graduated from college, I was really interested in politics and very interested in big city politics. I thought I would go learn about politics with the idea ultimately of becoming a politician. I would get elected to run a big city someplace and I would fix all the problems. That was my mentality at the time. So I went off to Washington, D.C. This was right after Ronald Reagan got elected here. And so I arrived in DC just as the Reagan revolution happened. And I worked on Capitol Hill for Senator and I lasted about a year and a half and really sort of came to an understanding of how decisions get made and the sorts of, I I learned about myself that I actually wasn't very interested in compromise. I wasn't interested in meeting people in the middle. I actually really (laughs) wanted to know, how do you answer problems? How do you, you know, I was much more curious and I was sort of much more interested in getting the real story rather than the story that would sell, you know, to the public or the story that would sell to politicians. So I quit my job. I had a, a friend, a person I barely knew who was, who was going to be hitchhiking across Africa. So I joined him and we hitchhiked from uh, Nairobi to Windhoek, or we split up partway, but I ended up in Windhoek. And it was this sort of a transformative moment where I thought I need a career where I can I can be able to to just learn about the world and thought about anthropology. I didn't really understand that anthropology would lead me into being a college professor or something you know relatively 
mundane and mainstream, <laughs> and, which involves compromise all the time. But I thought, you know, well, this is something that allows me to really pose a question and then just go into it full full force. Uh, so it was it was a curiosity driven decision, I would say. I actually wondered if you could tell us a bit more about how engaged anthropology became an aspect of the kind of anthropology that you practice. It goes back to, you know, again, why I went into anthropology in the beginning was was a, a real kind of obsession with confronting what I consider to be burning political questions about how to make the world a better place. And so for me, anthropology afforded me an entry into being able to think and act in the world in a way that I felt could be moral and could uh, engage with, with, with real issues that I cared about. Uh, so when I went off to do my fieldwork in Somalia, the country was on the brink of, this was in the late 1980s, the country was on the brink of collapse. Uh, nothing that I had read about Somalia prepared me for what actually was happening there, which was a world of foreign financial advisors and development aid folks running around Somalia, trying to completely reconvert the economy. And I think, you know, twisting the political economy of Somalia into such a contorted shape that um, it contributed, you know, directly to the conflagration that, that erupted when, when the aid was cut off in 1990, that led to the collapse of the, of the government and, and then that precipitated the civil war. And so for me, you know, using anthropology as a way to understand what the hell happened there. You know, how could something so horrific emerge like that with such, such violence and such destruction and such loss of human life? So it was very, so for me, anthropology, it, it was a really burning question. Um, you know, how does war happen? How, how, does a, how, does, how does brutality happen in the world? that anthropology could be, provide not just an insight into, but also a way to talk about in public, a way that could afford me a language that I could use in different registers with different audiences. So, you know, one register engaging with my Somali colleagues and interlocutors, another register in, in dealing with, you know, my family and people like them, you know, who held particular stereotypes or understandings of Somalia mediated through the Western media another language for dealing directly with the Western media, another language for dealing directly with policymakers. Anthropology affords us all of these different entry points and this sort of vast disciplinary vocabulary for talking about real people living real lives in the midst of real harm being done to them in, in a world of harms. And that uh, has, I think, compelled me ever since. One of the papers I want to ask you about seems to come directly from that situation and that ethos you went into anthropology with of fixing all the problems. It's the paper you published in 1996 in current anthropology called Representing Violence and Othering Somalia. So one of the critiques that you put forward in this paper, it was on the fixity of Somali clan identities which was put forward in a lot of American media and in American academics coverage of the Somalian civil war. And your critique of the fixity of this narrative seemed to resonate with some of the critiques made by scholars like Sophia Adid and Kawa Abdi around Kadan studies. So if you don't mind, I'm curious about the afterlife and the after effects of this paper and then beyond anthropology. So, so the paper precipitated a, a, a big backlash against me by some of the leading 
um, senior male uh, scholars of Somalia, not Somalis, but white scholars, both American and European. It was at a moment where tensions were running very high about what was happening in Somalia. And the, the, the field of Somali studies was itself deeply embroiled in struggling to understand and, and come to terms with what was happening in that country. So there were a lot of tensions around critique, uh, around uh, to what extent clans were responsible. I was part of the, a, a group of scholars who felt that 20th and soon to be 21st century um, post-colonial sorts of pressures in a neoliberalizing globalized world were far more to blame than you know, clan identity and, and tribalism. And that the sort of clan identity, weaponized clan identity that was emerging in the context of the civil war was responsive to the transformations wrought by neoliberal agendas. That was not well received by some of the senior figures in the field who, who really had a lot of power and kind of used up a lot of the, the airtime. So I think when Awa and and Sophia came came along, you know, a little bit later, they were still speaking, you know, to that to that same critique of how Somalia was being represented in the Western media, whose voices were the loudest. There were a lot of Somali scholars during the '90s who were critiquing the clan-based explanation, but they didn't have the loudest voices, and they weren't the ones who were showing up in the media and you know, kind of bullying their way to the front of the room. And they weren't necessarily the ones being taught across, you know, political science classrooms in Europe and the United States, for example. So their critique, you know, echoed those of us who had critiqued in the, in the 90s already, but Somali studies hadn't budged a whole lot, you know, other than in sort of our, our corner. So it's, 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 it remained a legitimate critique. I think that all of us who study Africa have to be reminded loudly over and over and over again about the very complicated terrain that we are claiming a privilege to be able to write and talk about. And so having that critique be, be launched so clearly and so you know, uncompromisingly, I think was critically important to the ongoing constitution of Somali studies. In your 2016 book, Making Refuge, the processes despite which Somali people aspire and act to build lives they value are these humanitarianism processes. You know, one thing that emerges from the story is the kind of subtle violence of humanitarianism. We often think of humanitarianism. I mean, it's in the very name, this humane, benevolent thing. Can you tell us a little bit about how you came to think about humanitarianism through your Somali work? Yeah, that's such an interesting question. And, you know, from since the time that book was published, I, I, I find that people continually refer to me as a, as, a, as a critic of humanitarianism or a scholar of humanitarianism. I've never thought of myself that way. And so it's taken me a while to kind of get that hat on and think, well, why do people keep thinking I'm talking about humanitarianism? That's not what I'm talking about. But, but it actually is what I'm talking about in a sense. And, and this is why. So I, I never did fieldwork in the refugee camps. And I think in my mind, the humanitarian industry is, you know, most most highly represented in the form of refugee camps, where people are, you know, shepherded and then contained in in these conditions of of profound disempowerment and and disablement, um, in the name of offering them humanitarian care. And so I interviewed my Somali friends, acquaintances, interlocutors about their experiences in the camps, but never did fieldwork there myself. 
And I, I guess I, I never really thought about the refugee resettlement program as a form of humanitarianism, but of course it is. So putting it into that language, it does some really interesting work for the argument that I make in Making Refuge about what Somalis expected when they got here versus what the Americans who were, who were receiving them expected. So the Americans who participated in refugee resettlement and then offered support services and, and assistance to resettled Somali refugees think of themselves typically as, as humanitarians, as offering care, as being generous, as sh- showing empathy. And Somalis never saw themselves as needing humanitarian rescue or care. You know, they saw themselves as needing safety, as needing a place where they're not going to get killed and an ability to then rebuild their lives on their own terms, but not according to the terms of the humanitarians who are helping them. And so that's where the clash came about that I wrote about in Making Refuge, you know, very different understandings of what's supposed to happen through a refugee resettlement program. And when you think of refugee resettlement services as a form of charity, as a form of generosity, as opposed to as a fundamental necessity in a world where superpowers are running around the world, destabilizing people and creating contexts that, that are displacing people, that brings a very different understanding of the nature of rights and responsibilities as opposed to charity and generosity. So could you tell us a little bit more about, I guess, what are the subtle violences or the violences of that situation? Well, Somali refugees were expected once they arrived in this country to, to be eternally grateful for having been given the opportunity to come here. Um, They were constantly sort of reminded that they were recipients of charity and generosity, that they were being rescued, that they were being saved. And they were like, we saved ourselves. You know, we're we're alive, (laughs) We, we, we got here. And they really resisted this sort of insistence that they should not have a voice, they should not have the ability to articulate Um, what democracy looked like to them. They should not have a role in making claims on how their children should be treated in the schools. Uh, They should not have a role in making claims on how they should be treated in hospital settings. And so, you know, Somalis arrived with the full intention of being, you know, fully complete humans leading fully complete lives and were shocked to discover that they were going to be told when they could and couldn't speak, the sorts of things they were allowed to ask for and what they couldn't make demands about. Gosh, that sounds a lot like how things happen in Australia as well, I have to say. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. I got the sense that, well, as you say, you, you accidentally focused on humanitarianism and that work, <laughs> and then you've moved to this focus on militarization in your new book, Militarized Global Apartheid. So I got this inkling that I want you to talk a bit more about, about what these forces and processes have in common, humanitarianism and militarization. Right. So, so one of the aspects of humanitarianism that really does interest me quite a bit is it's in, it, in its militarized forms. When the U.S., let's just take as an example, intervenes in another country in the name of, military, in the name of humanitarianism using militarized means. You know, that's that those were the claims that were that were made by, you know, we were gonna go in and save Muslim women from the terrible Taliban. We were gonna save Haitian people after the earthquake. We were gonna, you know, these are these are militarized forms. The paramount example of it, of course, is the militarized response to Hurricane Katrina here in the United States. 
Um, these sorts of militarized responses are extremely disempowering. They're violent, they're brutal, and they set up enormous inequities between the humanitarians who have the military at their disposal to implement their understanding of what should happen and the people who are there to be rescued who are told you have no role to play in determining the terms of your rescue or the terms on which society is going to be rebuilt. So that, that's the real fundamental problem with militarized humanitarianism. Mm -hmm. And that has become such a common form of humanitarianism now in the world today. How I got to militarized global apartheid was partly through that work on, on militarized humanitarianism and partly through just sitting with Somali friends here in Maine as their family members left behind in Somalia or in the refugee camps in Kenya or living in South Africa were trying to figure out where they could go for safety. These were often people who had been rejected from the 1% who got you know, resettled through an official refugee resettlement program. And they were trying to figure out where they could go in the world and be safe. And borders were just closed against them everywhere. And I began sort of thinking about that and, and putting that in relation to the way um, cross-border mobility is enabled for the cosmopolitan elite and completely disabled for those whose lives have been disrupted largely by the actions of the cosmopolitan elite. And so I began kind of tentatively thinking through this set of relationships about whose mobility is enabled and for what purposes and whose mobility is disabled and what, that, what the disabling of the mobility of the majority of people in the world who benefits from that? What are the economic and political implications of disabling mobility for the vast majority of people in the world, especially the vast majority of people in the global South? And so that led me back to a deep engagement across ethnography. Anthropologists tell these stories intimately from every part of the world. So there is deep, rich ethnography from Australia and New Zealand, from uh, Indonesia and the Philippines, from Nepal, from the Gulf states, from, from there's not so much deep rich ethnography from Russia about this, but it's emerging. Um, certainly Europe and the United States, Central America, um, tons and tons and tons of, of really critically important ethnography. And so I just read across hundreds of ethnographies to, to craft this story about what I see as an emerging uh, system across the global north for managing through militarized means the cross-border mobility of people from the global south. In the book, which comes out later this year, and I feel very privileged to have had a sneak peek at it, in the book you, you, you kind of develop this idea of militarized global apartheid using apartheid as, you know, the apartheid regime in South Africa, we should say, as this kind of exemplar that is also not the limits of the structure, let's say, maybe. I found this kind of an, an intriguing form of argument and, and form. So I guess I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about how you came to, to decide on using apartheid as the exemplar. And, and what are the kind of challenges in trying to generate an argument using, you know, a specific political order as the origin of this global political order? So, so I had done, after Somalia, my next long period of field work was in South Africa. And so I spent the better part of six years um, living half of every year in Cape Town. And I wrote a book called Transforming Cape Town, which was about the efforts post-apartheid to dismantle apartheid and bring into being a new kind of social order. 
So I had read widely about apartheid. And so as I was doing all this reading of all these ethnographies and interviewing people and you know, thinking about cross-border mobility, I kept running up against what appeared to me to be the exact pillars of apartheid that were operative and put into place during you know, the 40, 50 year history of constructing apartheid in South Africa. And so I'm not arguing that the global North has sort of taken South African apartheid and appropriated it on a global level. I'm saying there are these similarities that are really, really interesting to think through. You know, there are some profound differences. South Africa was building a system of industrialized capitalism. The system of militarized global apartheid that I'm describing is one of, you know, neoliberal flexibility. And so it's, it's a different sort of economic basis that depends on the labor flexibility and the disposability of the labor force. And it's a far more complicated process and it's a far more technologized process now in, in terms of the ways in which cross-border mobility can be policed and managed from the South African case of, of using passes. I suppose there's a tiny bit of perhaps shock value at claiming that a system is taking shape on a global level that so much of the globe was so involved in condemning when it was operative and functional in South Africa. I am trying to push that point a little bit. Perhaps you can tell me of my over-pushing it. You read the manuscript, but, but I don't think so. Uh, I think it's kind of the global system has snuck up on us. I don't think it's the result of a cabal or a conspiracy of elites who have said, let's do this. Um, I think it's just been put into place piecemeal in different places over time. But these, the constellation of policies, mechanisms, technologies, forms of militarism being in place across the global north, I'm, I argue has come to constitute a system that looks just like what South Africa did during its apartheid years. You, I think, do a, a, a fantastic job of, of talking about how this is uncoordinated, it's accretive, I really like this word, accretive, like it's sedimented, it's built up over time, a kind of set of logics that do attempt to separate populations according to certain, yeah, according to certain logics. For the record, I don't think you pushed it <laughs> too far. Um, Good. I mean, I think one of the things that you point out is that this has always been a part of this global phenomenon of European imperialism, even though it might feel in this moment like we're witnessing, I guess, an intensification of what you call the criminalization and militarization of mobility. What I want to ask you about now is something that you say in your beautiful final chapter called Futures, which is that these impositions are unsustainable, just as the apartheid in South Africa was unsustainable. And they're unsustainable just because resisting them and insisting on something else seems to be an increasingly loud and coherent movement. Do you mind saying a bit more about that and also what anthropology's role in that might look like, if it has a role to play in it at all? You know, anthropology is not, um, doesn't consider itself a discipline of predicting the future. We, we, we tend to avoid that. But my editor was like, you have to write about the future. You have to. You can't just, you know tell us this whole story about the system come into being and then say, and there you have it. You have to talk about what comes next. And I was like, we don't do that. <laughs> it was really good exercise because it did force me to go back and read all the material about, about what, what contributed to apartheid dis dismantlement and then think about that story in relation to what we see happening around the world today. It does feel like 
And of course, I, I finished the book a long time ago, you know, far, far before the uprisings that, that we're now seeing greatly across this country, but across many other parts of the world as well, against anti-Black racism, and also against the treatment of the criminalization of migrants. It, it feels from where I sit right now, it feels as if we are potentially at a turning point where younger generations are saying to older generations, basically, how the fuck did you let this happen? You know, look at this mess that we're in. And the, the rage and the fury and the disgust about this system, this white supremacist system that has been erected and in which the, um, you know, your country, my country, uh, the countries of, of Europe have all been vigorously participatory and complicit, uh, simply can't last. And, you know, the, the relentlessness with which people continue to move is just one reason for that. But also the turning of militarization internally, uh, such as you know what we've been seeing in the United States with our sorry history of mass incarceration and the the complete impunity of the police in their treatment of black and brown people, and the the, the rising visibility of that, the rising resistance by multiracial communities who are proposing all sorts of of oppositions and insisting on transformations both in uh, through decarceration, but also through transformations in policing. I, it's hard for me to believe that that will just die down. I, I, I do feel that, that the white population of this country has been forced to acknowledge things that could they kind of knew, but uh, could kind of, you know, it's not that bad. It's not that serious. It's that bad and it's that serious. And it's unsustainable unless we want to see everywhere across our country what's happening in Portland, Oregon right now. If that's what we want to see with, you know, the, with the um, agents of the Department of Homeland Security being called in to brutalize protesters in the streets, pulling them into unmarked cars, taking them to undisclosed locations. President Trump is saying he's going to repeat this in cities across America if protesters don't shut up and go home. That's a, that's a breaking point. To, to that point, in the book, you write about how there were diverse reasons why apartheid ended in South Africa. And one of those that I hadn't really thought about before, the expense of maintaining a responsive and expensive military apparatus to police a, a, a majority population of the disenfranchised. This expense in the case of kind of global apartheid structures and logics that you're discussing is kind of part of what holds it together, though. Part of what holds it in place is private contractors who are invested in, you know, servicing these carceral systems of migration and, and imprisonment. So, uh, yeah, how do you understand, I guess, the economics of the rise and as we're kind of gesturing to the possible fall of this global system? Yeah, I think that's a great question. I think it's a critical question and it's it's something I've been thinking I, I might start to work on for my next book. If I, had an, I, I thought I would start trying to really learn about the world of private con military contractors. And, you know, they have these expos and they have these conferences. And so I thought I would start going, attending them and, and just feeling my way into what could potentially be a, a, new, a new project. Of course, none of that's happening right now, so I'm not doing that. But um, I think this really is the issue. If you look at what percentage of the U.S. annual budget goes towards the military and go, goes towards, you know, militarized 
purposes, whether it's managing the border, whether it's incarcerating people, whether it's policing, it's an enormous chunk. And so the current economic collapse that we're in the middle of with millions upon millions upon millions of people out of work and collecting unemployment, and with the US Congress dithering about what should happen next, and real disagreement between um, Democrats and Republicans about where to direct money. People are looking a lot more acutely at the at the amount of money, the, the ever expanding amount of money being devoted to the, the military piece of the pie. It's enormous. There have been efforts to begin to chip away at that. That's if that can can take force. Um, you know, I, I think for us here in the global north, a lot will be decided in November. It's it's just so hard to to know where we stand as a country right now. But with this display of military force to shut down protesters, to silence protesters, it's hard to believe that's not gonna provoke even greater uprisings and even greater calls to to demilitarize the country and defund the police. Uh, But I, I really don't know. I have a bit of a lateral question to these really big important issues that you're talking about that of course we're living through and that are really hard to speculate about and that lateral question is it just struck me when you talked about what you want your next project to be it just seems like such a big shift from the kind of nice ethnographic experience you seem to have been having hanging out with your friends (laughs) that you've known for many years sometimes you know and that some of whom you knew from when you did your fieldwork in Somalia who are now close to you in Maine I guess I just wondered how you're thinking about, or if you've had a chance to think about what that shift might mean. Doing fieldwork makes us open to the world in ways that we don't always choose, I feel. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 I dipped my toes in the waters with this in the South African fieldwork because I was very, very curious to talk to and listen to people who continue to defend apartheid and who continued to insist on their right as white people to live a life separate from black people. And it was fascinating to me that people in the new South Africa were continuing to to promote these attitudes that things were better under apartheid and that white people and black people were fundamentally different and that it was really, really, really important to safeguard what they considered to be white culture. And so I spent a lot of time talking to people who were self identified white racists. And it was fascinating, you know, anthropologically fascinating. So I I do think it's incumbent upon us, we can't just do fieldwork with people we like, you know, we have to do fieldwork with people. That's that's, that's where anthropology is at its powerful. Um, You know, doing fieldwork with people with with who hold worldviews that that differ profoundly from, from ours. And so I'm also really interested in, you know, the mentality that that militarization is the answer to everything. Militarization is the answer to development. Militarization is the answer to humanitarian, you know, the need for humanitarian intervention. Militarism is the, is the answer for disaster relief. Militarism is the answer for um, border control. So the United States has kind of reduced its relationship with the rest of the world at this point down to uh, prioritizing military encounters. And so our ongoing military activities in Africa, which I've tracked for many, many years, uh, take the form of military interventions, military trainings, uh, militarized trainings of the police, hiring private contractors to train the police and to train military units um, as sort of capacity building for African countries. And I'm interested in that mentality. 
You know, why, why that? But I'm also interested in the ways in which private contractors, uh, military, the big military corporate corporations, uh, and people who work for the government circulate this knowledge with other countries. And so Elbit Systems in Israel comes up with the technology and they train folks here. And then folks here talk with folks, you know, in Australia about this is a great border, you know, surveillance technology that we can use. So I'm interested in seeing if I can track the circulation of these sorts of technologies and the moral justifications for their deployment. So, so very much mirroring the kind of justifications for white supremacy that I write about it in the book that were taking place um, at the beginning of the last century between Australia, Great Britain, the United States, Canada, and the British, uh, the white British dominions. I too have a lateral question, actually, provoked by that that question. Before um, earlier, you you referred to the people that you speak to in your research by a number of different terms, uh, informants, interlocutors, participants, friends. And I think this is a really interesting thing in research today, where similarly, I don't know what to call the people who I engage with, because some you are highly sympathetic with and others you come to understand. And that's the point of the research. But it's not to say that you, they're people that you would call your friends. Do you have uh, any thoughts on this topic? Like, what what are the what are the ways in which ethnography is developing this terminology around <laughs> around the people we speak to? <laughs> I'm trying to think of the most I'm trying to think of the most neutral term the tra- the people that we spend time with. I think I think it's really important to nuance that vocabulary quite a bit. So. I do try to be specific when I'm talking about people who are my friends as opposed to people who are my interlocutors. I don't know if I use the word, I don't really use the word informants as much. Um, I don't, I don't like research subjects that, that sounds very, you know, distancing to me, but there's a difference between my friends and my acquaintances and my interlocutors. And I do think it's important to flag that. Not everybody that I talk to and work with and interview, say for the Making Refuge book, are friends. Some are people who are quite hostile to the story that I'm telling, and some are people who I'm quite hostile towards. And so those are my interlocutors. We argue with each other. You know, we're debating. We're, we're trying to understand each other's viewpoints. And then there are people, you know, many of the folks who are named in the book who are my friends, who, you know, we have dinner together and we hang out with our kids or, you know, whatever. It's, it's a different kind of a relationship. It doesn't mean we're not also debating and fighting and disagreeing, but there's a, there's a different sort of trust that we're involved in the same project, which may not exist with my interlocutors. Uh, so it's, it's, that's, that's a really great question. I'm, I'm aware that I slide back and forth between using all these different words. I don't, feel comfortable having one word that encompasses, you know, the universe of, of folks who I work with and interview and hang out with and am friends with. I, I, I don't, I don't know that. What do you, what do you well, do? I, <laughs> I, this is very much on my mind because sometimes I think of the work that I do as participatory research, uh-huh. but I'm not, I'm not at the far end of participatory research in that sometimes I have co-authored things with friends and sometimes I have not. And sometimes uh, in, in one's practice, you circulate things that you write back to your interlocutors and they might have an opinion on them. 
to what extent are they interlocutors? To what extent are they participants at that moment? Yeah. And I feel like this is a live debate in anthropology as throughout the social sciences. As much as we're willing to now make the boundaries around who's a researcher and who's not a researcher plastic, what are, what are going to be the new ones that emerge? You know, where are we setting the line? Yeah, Mythly, it's great. Do you, I was wondering if Mythly, just to, to turn, the, to, turn, yeah. the, turn the interviewee into the uh, interviewed. I, I think about this all the time because I feel like every time I look back on anything I've written several years ago, I, I'm irked by the word I use to describe those people that you spend time with. And then different, different kinds of projects, like not all the research I've done has been ethnographic. So, and the ethnographic research I've done has been, some of it has been closer to, I guess, what I've seen recently called a patchwork style, where you're following, you're paying attention to a document or a concept rather than a group of people in their lives. And I think when we write, we often write with a very clear sense of what our identity is to ourselves in relation to others in the, in the work and in the writing. But, you know, I've done research where no one really took me seriously as a researcher at an old folks home where I was just sort of a surrogate granddaughter who was around to spend time with people. And I get told off for asking questions that were none of my, that were, that I was too young to know about and things like that. So, you know, we are different things to people too. Absolutely. Yeah. Another time when I think about it is when, I or people I know are applying for uh, human ethics uh, approval or what they call in the States IRBs, institutional review boards, where, you know, these institutional processes ask us to imagine all of the risks that we might pose to uh, the people that we're going to spend time with and, and what it is that we're going to tell them what we're up to and, and, and what all the consequences might be. And for me, this is always such a, a, a difficult thing mentally because the point of ethnography is that I and they will transform and how we might transform together, or at least part of the point of doing the research. I mean, it's hard to put that in a participant information sheet too, (laughs) isn't it? You and I will both be transformed by this encounter. (laughs) You are agreeing to your interpersonal, to participate in interpersonal transformation. (laughs) Yeah. I would, I wouldn't sign up for that. That's Yeah. So I wondered if we could we could move to a, a, another topic, which is a, around a book that you and Hugh Gustafson, a friend of the podcast, uh, published last year, called "Life by Algorithms: How Robo Processes Are Remaking Our World." And in the book, you uh, write uh, in your chapter about algorithms as uh, a revolution in the ordering, control, surveillance, and profit-making realms of social management. Can you tell us a little bit about how, you know, what kinds of algorithms you're referring to there and and how you became interested in them? How did algorithms catch your eye? Well, this is the, um, Hugh and I have done a number of collaborative projects together and over the years and algorithms uh, was the, he, he was the one who was really fascinated by algorithms and suggested it as the possibility for a project. So our projects over the years together have been about finding things that are structuring contemporary life. So the book that we did prior to this one was called The Insecure American. And it was intended to kind of confront the language of security and insecurity that was so ascendant here post 9-11. And to look at all the ways in which the trope of insecurity was being parlayed into all these domains of life. 
um, where it had really no business being and where it had not really existed before. And the one before that was called Why America's Top Pundits Are Wrong, which is self-explanatory, but it was, we were confronting the kind of emerging consensus around the contours of a post-Cold War world that we thought were, we were, we thought the pundits were wrong, obviously. And so we amassed anthropological expertise to, to say why. And um, we, we've also um, did a collaborative project on, on cultures of militarism. And so Hugh, Hugh came up with the idea of algorithms and it became actually fascinating to me the more I read about it. I, initially, I was kind of like, oh, I don't know about this one. This is kind of new for me. But I started reading. And I was like, this is exactly the sort of thing that we've been writing about all along. How contemporary social life is being restructured um, according to quantitative methodologies that reduce and simplify social life to measurable chunks that they can then be fed into uh, computerized programs to spit out protocols for specifically what's going to maintain greater forms of social order and control and what's going to enable the maximization of profit and profitability, extraction and exploitation. And so it was those dimensions of algorithms that became really fascinating to me. Who benefits from their deployment? What are the cultural parameters that are written into algorithms to assure that they have certain kinds of outcomes that will benefit certain categories of people and perhaps not benefit other categories of people? And how has the ideology, the sort of the, the, the culturology of algorithms then invaded other aspects of life in such a way that people are increasingly willing to subject aspects of life to a kind of a, a calculus, a, a quantification of success and failure, of measurement that had never been measured in that way before. And uh, so as we got thinking about um, how algorithms are being deployed in the interests of social control and profit maximization, like it just became endless, the, the number of topics that we, could, that we could ask about. One of the ones that most fascinated me was food production, the ways in which algorithms are now being deployed to try to figure out how many piglets a sow should, should be able to give birth to and what the, what the profit logic is of how many of those piglets will be allowed to die because they're not born viable and how many sows will be lost because their, their bodies are destroyed through an effort to overproduce piglets. And so Alex Blanchett's chapter in this book about meat production um, is an example of an algorithm, you know, penetrating into our food industry in a way that not only transforms the animals themselves, but the human beings who work with those animals and care for those animals and are left trying to deal with the damage that the imposition of those algorithms has on the bodies of, of the animals. So the way that you were phrasing that as well, and it kind of matches a lot of popular accounts where algorithms are being figured as influential actors and being quite controlling, quite powerful. For anthropologists, this framing of algorithms is likely familiar with what's come before in terms of framing technology as separate and human and autonomous agent. But like any other technology, wouldn't an anthropology of algorithms suggest that it's impossible for them to be autonomous and human and that they're actually fundamentally social and human? Uh, absolutely. And that's what we were trying to show as well, that these the algorithm, algorithms are built to, 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 to do specific kinds of things and to ensure certain kinds of outcomes. And so, you know, in looking at 
felony convictions, Keisha Middlemass's chapter in our book, for example, the algorithms that determine whether somebody qualifies uh, to be prosecuted as a felony, whether somebody is likely to, you know, what, what, the, what the possibility of recidivism is, what kind of parole should be granted. All of these things are algorithmically generated. And those algorithms are built by people who are racist. And so the algorithms then are racist. And so they incarcerate, you know, I mean, we know the outcomes. It's, it's, that, that, that's clear. Um, and we see the same thing with, you know, business practices. There was that wonderful study done by a, a scholar at Harvard looking at the ways in which algorithms on the internet feed people information or ads that they think would be relevant to them in ways that are racist. And so, again, this all leads into a study of who's building these algorithms and what data are they drawing from in order to build these algorithms. A lot of attention right now is coalescing around hotspot policing and the algorithms that police are using to identify neighbors, neighborhoods that they define as being algorithmically proven to be high crime neighborhoods. And thus those are the neighborhoods where they're gonna concentrate their policing, which of course leads into a, a feedback loop. The more you concentrate policing, the more people are gonna get arrested, the more that neighborhood is gonna flare up as a hotspot. And so the sorts of algorithms that are being used for hotspot policing, for predictive policing, these are all racist algorithms because they're built using the data that police have generated for who's getting arrested, who's more likely to get arrested, um, which neighborhoods are more likely to produce arrests. And of course, those numbers are generated by the history of racist policing. And so, yes, ab absolutely, absolutely. Alg algorithms are a reflection of, of our cultural norms and values. Therefore, I guess part of what interests me out of that is how do we find these people these potential interlocutors, participants, and so on, who work on these systems. I think one of the, the things that strikes me about ethnography now is a real desire for people to study up, but it's just very difficult to ever find the people who are behind these systems. I wonder if you had any thoughts on that. It's not really a question so much as a... Right. Well, you know, some of the things I've been intrigued by some of the solutions or suggestions that people who study this for a living, Frank Pasquale is one, Shoshana Zuboff is another, Kathy O'Neill is another, her great book, Weapons of Math Destruction, about algorithms. They, they, they're really clear about what needs to happen to contain the potential damage wrought by algorithms. And so some of the things that they suggest are things like, you know, transparency in, in how algorithms are written. And so, there, you know, New York City and I think someplace in, in Pennsylvania have inaugurated this for policing algorithms that they have to be, so up until very recently, many of these algorithms have been treated as proprietary and thus not subject to public review. And so there's, there, they, so the algorithms are allowed to operate with impunity. And so the challenge to that then is that all algorithms to be used in public service need to be available for review by a qualified board of folks who are vetted in some way. And the assumptions that are built into the algorithms need to be transparent. That has to be clear. So that's sort of one argument for what needs to happen, these sort of transparency review boards. Another argument is much more widespread computer literacy, coding literacy for kids. You know, this is something that kids should be learning in school. The more people have access to coding and to understanding how algorithms are built, 
the more difficult it will be to, you know, to build biased algorithms that people don't understand. That's another solution I've seen floated about. You know, so again, these authors have, have lots of clear ideas. Frank Pasquale tends towards lots and lots of regulations. He's very interested in re- reimposing regulatory reforms on the deployment of algorithms. Others lean more towards transparency. Others lean more towards, you know, popular widespread coding education. So uh, that's, that, that's, I guess, kind of where I lean more towards rather than how do we get at the people who are currently writing code. Thinking about algorithms leads me to think about kind of platform capitalism and some of the platforms that we are using now in order to continue to do academic work. We're speaking to you via a unnamed, but, you know, globally popular and financially uh, wealthy piece of video conferencing software. What are the consequences that you see, you know, for your graduate students and anthropologists in, in moving our work online in this way? Well, that's a really hard question, Tim. Thank you for that. <laughs> I mean, I, I wrote a short piece. I read about how much money in the first three months of the pandemic Google made and Zoom made, just to name two. And it, it, it's obscene. And I wrote a little piece that I called COVID Capitalism mm. about the ways in which um, moving to these online platforms is um, accruing unimaginable profits for uh, for those platforms. Yeah, I mean, there was all that work in the 90s about how cell phone, the advent of cell phone technology enabled mass protest in countries where the use of internet technologies uh, was heavily regulated and surveyed by the state. And so anthropologists were doing a lot of things over their phones to engage with these movements and uh, to use modes of communication that that were not surveyed yet and and so i i keep thinking that we're going to come up with that that people who do this sort of thing will come up with that i mean i know that they have already but it's not in widespread use and so i i I, it's hard for me to imagine that there won't be a revolution in communicative technology like there was um, with cell phones that will enable organizing and you know all sorts of alternative forms of communication. Well, thank thank you for speculating with me. Thank you so much. You've been listening to another episode of Conversations in Anthropology, a podcast about life, the universe, and anthropology. This podcast is produced by David Border-Giles, Timothy Neal, Cami O'Dally, Mythley Maher, and Matt Barlow, and made in partnership with the American Anthropological Association. To learn more about this podcast, find us on Twitter, we're at AnthroCombo. And don't forget to rate and review us on your chosen podcasting platform.